0: Amen. Well, please, if you would take your seats and turn with me and your copy of the Word of God to the Book of Amos and chapter five. And as you're turning there, let me apologize. Our internet is down across the building this evening, and so I couldn't get my notes off my laptop onto my iPad. And so I fear during the sermon I'm going to have to keep as my laptop goes to sleep, as just want to do. Um, I'll have to keep on typing in my uh, passcode, so forgive me for that. It reminds me, actually, of Piercy Pie. I was doing pastor visitation at the Bolton's house, and I was asking each of the children, which of the, which do, what, what do they uh, benefit most from the sermons? And Piercy Pie said, it's a fine time to go to sleep. <laughs> Honest chap, and I appreciate that. It was good having him, though, this week at uh, our lead with character trip, he was, he was definitely not sleeping. He was bright and alert and bushy tailed and uh, paying attention to Steve May, who's definitely a much more exciting speaker than I. Uh, let's turn to God's word in Amos 5 and let's pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, you're very great, clothed with splendor and majesty. And we deal, O Lord God, with sleeping computers and sleepy hearts and sleepy heads and all kinds of providences that You send, O God, to interrupt the best laid plans of mice and men. And when they do, O God, it reminds us that You are God and we are not. As we pray this evening, O Lord God, in um, Your great mercy and grace, You would send Your Holy Spirit into the flustered heart of this preacher, And help me, O God, to make sense of a difficult passage of Scripture, that Your Word would live and abide in my heart and in the heart of every man and woman and boy and girl, and that it would search us out and show us up and do us good, and show how it stands between us and our God, whether we be close with You or far. And we offer these prayers, O Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin of Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go, do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to be Irshiva. for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest He break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down a righteousness to the earth, He who made Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate Him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor Him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from Him, You have built houses of hewn stones, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gates. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas! Alas, you shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fat and animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice rule down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting, ever-flowing stream. You bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel. You shall take up Sukkoth, your king, and Kiryan, your your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. We often call human beings homo sapiens, men the thinker, men the wise ones. But in reality, man is homo religionis before he's homo sapiens. He's he's man the worshiper before he's man the thinker. We were made to worship God. We have in our hearts a religious instinct, a yearning to find something so big and so good and so long-lasting that if we order our lives around us, it will make us happy forever, like the Willy Wonka's chewing gum that never loses its taste. But of course, everything in this world does lose its taste, but still, man has this uh, religious instinct. And most human beings tend to assume that if I engage in religion, God should be grateful, and that if my religion pleases me, then automatically it'll please God because God is grateful that I would spend any time and give any thought and give any effort to His worship. That's the, that is the predominant instinct across this world. Even in America, the predominant question most people ask when they come to church is, How did, what did I get out of church? Did it satisfy me? And the one question many human beings fail to ask is, did my religion satisfy God? And the problem in the book of Amos is that God's people love their religion, and they're very religious. The problem is God doesn't share the same opinion about their worship as they do. You know, the religious instinct is like the sexual instinct. God has given human beings a sexual instinct that one man and one woman should join themselves in a lifelong union of marital love. But, of course, that sexual instinct can be perverted into fornication and adultery and homosexuality and all other manners of perversion, right? And, And remember, God is pleased with marriage but He is displeased with the perversion of our uh, sexual uh, instincts and drives. And it's exactly the same with our religious drive and our religious instinct. It too can be perverted. It's designed to receive God as He offers Himself to us in creation and conscience, general revelation, the book of nature, and in the book of Scripture. But as Calvin says, man… Rather than receive God as man reveals him, as God reveals Himself to us, man prefers to measure God by the yardstick of his carnal imagination. And that's what Israel had been doing at Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. More about that in a moment. Gilgal is the place where religion has been perverted. It's been turned away from truth. They're worshiping the wrong gods in the wrong way. And just sticking the right name on those gods doesn't make it any better. And the driving point of this passage is that God is no more happy with what happens in Bethel, even though it's religious, as you'd be happy with what goes on in a brothel. The worship of Bethel is an abomination to God, just like the sexual activities in a brothel are an abomination to God, because both in Israel, the religious instinct and the sexual instinct have been perverted and have turned away from truth and have turned away from God and have led God's people astray. So, man is homo religionis before he's homo sapiens. And it's important to realize, too, another principle you've got to understand that's a presupposition in this passage is that what shapes your worship will shape your life. If your worship is true, if, as Paul says in Philippians 3, we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh that true worship will shape your life. You become a man who lays aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles, and you'll lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us. We'll press on and lay hold of the upward call of God. What shapes your worship will shape your life. So if truth shapes your worship, then you're well on the way to living a true life. But when lies shape your worship and you have a false worship, you worship the wrong God in the wrong ways, then that will in turn lead to a life that is false and an eternity which is very much insecure. You will meet God when you die, but you might not meet God the way you'll think you'll meet God if you go proud of your religion, but a religion is empty of truth and devoid of God Himself. And that essentially is um, God's point here in Amos 5. And it divides into two two halves. We might not get through both halves this evening. We'll see. It's 10 past. The first 17 verses are God's lament over Israel's false religion. And it, the message essentially is that um, God is lamenting the death of Israel's soul, the death of the nation's soul. They're dead in their soul and dead in their worship and dirty and depraved and dead in their lifestyle. God's lamenting the death of a nation's soul. And in verse 18 to the end of the chapter, God is pronouncing the death of a, na- of a nation's hope. They, These are people who are they love prophecy. They're like, they're like some of our brothers who love the charts of the end times, and they, they love talking about the day of the Lord, and the rapture, and the second coming, and everything else, right? And they love all that. They think about, love thinking about the glory days to come. And, and God says to them, essentially, you, you think the day of the Lord will be good? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? For such a people it is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? It's the photographic negative, you might say, in the Old Testament of 1 John 1, when God says, or John says about God, God is light, in Him there's no darkness. If we say that we know God and walk in the darkness, we lie. So, if we walk in the darkness, John says, Amos is saying, you will die in the darkness forever. But if you walk in the light as God is in the light, truly we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from each sin. And if we walk in the light and are cleansed and forgiven and have fellowship with God and one another, then Amos's point is the death of the Lord will be light and not darkness. So, the death of a nation's soul and the death of a nation's hope. And God, in this passage, is singing the blues. He's singing the blues. Why? Well, first of all, because Israel are, are destined to be decimated by slaughter. Verse 2, verse 1, hear this word, that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. It's a, it's a tragic picture of an unmarried girl, abandoned, Israel have abandoned God, and it's as if she's never been married at all. She's a virgin abandoned by all and everyone, and she's lying dead and naked in a a field, exposed, ashamed. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred in it, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. It's an inverse decimation. You remember decimation was the penalty in Rome of of a traitorous legion, and they would the commanding officer of the army would go through the traitorous or um, treasonous legion, or maybe a legion that was a coward in battle and turned tail and ran, and he would take one man of every ten, and ten men of every hundred, and a hundred men of every thousand, and they'd be taken out, and their own legion would put them to death. The The traitors would kill and decimate their own men as a sign of how wicked a thing they had done. But in decimation, one is taken and nine are left. This is an inverse decimation. Nine are taken and one is left. Ninety are taken and ten is left. Nine hundred are taken and a hundred is left. It's a complete and utter slaughter. And God is lamenting. And God, this is a future thing. This is when Assyria comes down in 722 B.C., probably 40 years later or so, and, and, and wipes Israel off the face of the map forever. And they're, they're completely decimated But God speaks about it, a future thing, as if it was a past thing. So certain is the coming day of judgment, decimated by slaughter. And at the end of this, this first blues song, God talks about them being despondent with sorrow. Verse 16, "'Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord.'" In all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation, and in the vineyards there shall be wailing. For I will pass through your midst, declares the Lord. It's a grievous um, thing. The, the professional mourners who have seen it all, you're know, the ones you pay to come and wail at a funeral but their hearts aren't really sad. They're just wailing. You know, they turn on the tears like an actress. But these people will not be turning on the tears in those days to pretend to be sorrowful. Their hearts will be broken and rent to the very bottom of their being. And the farmers, the hard men who never cry, the men with weather-beaten faces and rough but gentle hands, those dogged, determined farm boys and farmers who are men and never cry, even they will be weeping and wailing. And in the vineyards where normally there would be drinking and celebration, there's wailing and mourning because God has come down in their midst. So, there's decimation by slaughter and despondence with sorrow. And the reason, God says, for this decimation and despondency is that Israel have been deceived by their religion. Seek the Lord and live. Sorry, verse 4. For thus says the Lord of, to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beeshiva. for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest He break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it. For Bethel What's God saying here? Well, Alec Mateo says it's a tale of three shrines, Bethel, um, Gilgal, and Be'erashiva. Bethel, you remember, was one of the central places in Jacob's life. It was the place when he's fleeing the wrath of Esau that he meets his brother. And, or, sorry, fleeing from the wrath of Esau, he meets his God, sorry. Remember, he's there in Bethel, and he sleeps on this rock, and God gives him this vision of heaven torn open and a ladder descending from heaven to earth, and God standing above the ladder. If you turn there, turn actually in Genesis 22, 28 and see that for me a second, quickly. I'm pretty sure we're going to deal with this first half of the chapter this evening. It's amazing how slow the time goes, or how fast the time goes when you're the one doing the preaching. Um. <laughs> Verse 12, And Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring, sorry, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the world of the Lord earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. And so Bethel is a place of divine revelation where God meets with men. Remember also uh, Jacob went back to Bethel in Genesis 35, if you remember our morning sermons from a few weeks ago. And you remember when, when, when Jacob promised God that he would go back to Bethel and give a tithe of all he owned, and when he went back to the promised land after he left Laban, he didn't go to Bethel, remember, he went to Shechem. And the thing is, Shechem was there was a lot to like about Shechem, you remember, but it was not Bethel. And the tragedy was it was only a few miles away from Bethel. I forget how far, maybe 17 miles, I forget, but it's only a few miles away from Bethel, one interstate stop maybe. And, but, ja- but Jacob didn't go there. He didn't follow through in his promise. And at Shechem, great slaughter happened, you remember, and great disaster to Levi. But when when Jacob went back to Bethel, God again revealed Himself to him there in Genesis 35. He goes to Bethel, verse 3, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Bethel's a place where they forsook the foreign gods. And they turned to meet the true God, and God met them in their distress. But in Israel's, in Amos's day, it's, it's exactly the reverse. Israel are embracing the foreign God. Later on in the chapter of Amos, he'll talk about the, Syri- the, the Assyrian God. Before they ever went to Assyrian exile, they have the Assyrian God already firmly ensconced in their hearts. Israel are turning away from the true God and turning toward the false gods and going to Bethel. It's exactly the reverse of Jacob. And God says through Amos, seek Me and live. Do not seek Bethel. They're going to Bethel. They're seeking the place where men met God, but they're not seeking the God who met those men in that place. That's the problem. And, and Gilgal. Do not enter Gilgal. Gilgal is the place, remember, of Israel when they first entered the Promised Land in, in Joshua 5. And they camped there in Gilgal, and they circum... They're, they're right inside the Promised Land, surrounded by hairy, strong, muscular, violent, aggressive pagans who are out for their blood. And the first thing they do is renew covenant with God. they would not been circumcising their sons. And so, all of the men and all of the sons are circumcised, except for the old men who were in Egypt and... They're, they're circumcised and, and um, put out of action for four days. This is, a, this is the worst thing you could do militarily, but it's the best thing you could do spiritually, is to get right with God before you ready yourself for battle, getting right with God. Gilgal was a place where men got right with God and therefore became a place of spiritual victory. But God's saying here, Gilgall has become a place where people just go. A traditional place. Like names like Calvin and Spurgeon and John Owen. They're meaningless. The Westminster Confession of Faith is meaningless without the, the God of the, of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The whole Westminster Confession of Faith is meaningless without the first verse of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is sconced in our hearts. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Without that, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a dead, dry, dusty document that will lead you to hell, and it ought to be leading you to God. That's what God is saying here to these people. And 'er Beersheba, Beersheba is the place where God came to to, um, Hagar in her distress when she was wandering in the wilderness of 'er Beersheba, a place where God made a covenant, or Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech, and God met Abraham and made promises to him. It was was the, the well of the covenant, the well of the oath. And God's people are going there, but they've abandoned the God of the covenant and the covenant of the God. And God says, those places will do you no good, for those very places shall go to exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, Amos says, lest He break out like fire. We were talking my computer's gone to sleep. I'll just leave it. They were talking um, in a need with character. How did Washington and Lee, this great university that was set up by by General Lee and was set up to raise Christian men for the nation, how did it go from where it was then to where it is now? How did VMI, where, where Jackson taught? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the four canons are in the front of it, right? But you walk in, and the first office you come to is the office of diversity. How did that happen? They've taken down um, Thomas Jackson's statue from VMI. They've closed forever the, 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 the crypt of uh, Robert E. Lee. It's a beautiful crypt of this old general lying in a marble statue in state with his arms and his sword across his chest. It's one of the most beautiful tombs I've ever seen. And it's been closed forever. And the name of Lee's been taken off the chapel. How did that happen? Well, it's a very simple prospect. You have the words of orthodoxy, and the God of orthodoxy, and the life of orthodoxy. And what happens is people come in, and they take the words of orthodoxy, words like justification, covenant, sanctification, worship, inspiration, and they use the words, but they change the meaning. And when you use the words, you might use the right words, have the right name for God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. But if the words we use aren't joined to the truth God has given, the words themselves become meaningless and emptiness, and they lead us into darkness. Bethel shall come to nothing. And the central problem with Israel here is the religion is not dealing with God. They're going to church, but they're not going to God. And you know, it's really easy easy for you and I to have that same problem. Steve May was asking us, what was the most meaningful part of Leibeth character? And for me, it was the Dunker's Church lecture he gives on the importance of prayer, that the army of God goes forth on its knees, or it'll not go forth at all. And it occurred to me as he was speaking, God convicted me because the devil will do everything or will do anything to get me to do everything except pray. It's so easy to be involved in pastoral ministry, to be involved in communion and baptism and preaching sermons and writing sermons and giving people advice and counsel, but slowly Somewhere in betwixt and between, you lose contact with God. You drift away from Him. I came in here, you know, 35 minutes ago. No, it was longer than that. Uh, An hour ago, when I was a basket case, you know, I mean, I couldn't get my sermon offline onto the the computer, and it was a complete basket case. It was quite rude to Paul post. I'm very sorry, brother. You know... (laughs) Uh, about the, the internet in the, in the staff house being down and so forth and so on. Long story. Not Paul's fault. But how do, how do you get there? You get the, It's amazing you can be writing a sermon about meeting with God, and yet you can lose such contact with God. That your heart's in turmoil. No love, no joy, no peace, no patience, no goodness, no kindness, no faithfulness, and no self-control. And God's word to me is, forget about the internet, you stupid Claude. Seek me and live. Seek religion by itself and you'll die. Where's your soul this evening? Is your soul close to God or far from me, God says? Are you using the words of orthodoxy, but to somehow have avoided contact with the God of orthodoxy. Sometimes we use the words of orthodoxy like the trees in the garden for Adam and Eve to hide themselves behind them, like a little three-year-old playing hide-and-seek with his grandfather. And he's standing beside this little popular tree that'd be out in the parking lot and goes, grandfather, you can't see me he's going like this, and he thinks, because he can't see his grandfather, his grandfather can't see him, and his little derriere is pointing at the back of the tree, and his nose pointing out the front of the and the grandfather plays along. It's a delightful charade, and he goes, I can't find you. Are you over here? And the wee boy thinks he's hiding, but everybody knows where the boy is, and that's exactly God's point here. He says, I know how many are your transgressions, your deliberate acts of disobedience, how great are your sins, how you've fallen short of my commandments, how you've transgressed my commandments. There's no hiding from me. It's interesting, in all of their religion, all these sacrifices they talk about, you know the one sacrifice they never mention? God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, verse 21. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. You know the one offering they're not mentioning? The sin offering, exactly. Exactly their religion isn't dealing honestly with God, and so therefore, of course, their religion is not dealing honestly with sin. And the two go hand in hand. If you don't deal honestly with God, you'll not deal honestly with sin. you become, you become fast and loose in your life. Your appetites for internet, movies, food, alcohol, anything else will become rampant, disconnected from the Word of God and the God of the Word… Disconnect from God and we disconnect from the concept of sin because the two go together like water and wet. And so it's no surprise then that we disconnect from truth. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. There's no love for the God of the word, and so there's no love for the word of God. Or the one who delivers it. It's like the days of Jesus. You remember, um, John the Baptist comes and he goes, He's the guy with the weird beard and the itchy, scratchy blanket coat, and he lives in the desert and eats bugs. Weird guy. And he's really strict, you know, mm, return or burn is his message. And the Pharisees don't like him very much. And then Jesus comes and he eats and drinks with sinners and tax collectors. Goes to parties and talks to homosexuals and prostitutes. And the Pharisees go, he's, don't like him either. Remember Jesus says the parable, we played the, the like, like children in the, in the playground saying, what do you want to play? Do, do, do you want to play a dirge and we'll have a cry session? No, no, that's too, you know, not do that. Okay, let's play a happy song and dance. No, we don't do that either. And they always find a way to… something about the preacher. They find some reason in the preacher to disregard his message. Too loud. Too soft. Too many illustrations. Not enough illustrations. Too logical. Too kind of chaotic. And there's something in the style of the preacher that that gives people a reason to ignore his message. But the, the real problem is they hate the reprover, because they hate the truth, and the exposure God's truth brings to them. And God here in Amos 5 is calling His people back to deal honestly with the reality of God. He says in verse 7, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So, here's God's people. They take justice, and they turn it into bitter wormwood. And they take um, righteousness and they throw it down to the earth. Like a toddler throwing a temper tantrum, throwing their toys down, right? But it's not toys they're throwing down, it's righteousness and the principles of God. And it reminds me, I'm sorry, Kyle's going to preach Jonah next, and, and um, our brother this morning half stole his thunder, and I'm now going to completely steal his thunder. Because in Jonah 1, you remember when Jonah runs away, remember Ralph Davis in class says, when God gets angry, he starts throwing things because God hurls this, storm, this, this, this um, storm onto the sea. It's very graphic. He hurls the storm onto the sea. And there's a repetition of the word hurling in Jonah 1. and And it's like that here. Israel are throwing things down and turning justice to wormwood. And God says, You aren't the only one who can play that game. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion, the great constellations of the heavens, and turns darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. You turn justice to bitterness. God turns darkness to light. He can make things better, or He can take light and turn it into deepest outer darkness. And you throw down righteousness to the earth, God takes the waters of the oceans in measureless gallons, billions of gallons, and hurls them down onto the water. This is the God they're not dealing with. This is the God they're ignoring, busying themselves in their religion. you dealt with the reality of God? A God who speaks the universe into existence. It's immeasurable billions, hundreds of billions of galaxies. Some say 300 billion galaxies, each with more than 100 billion stars. And our own galaxy is 100,000 light years wide, traveled at 187,000 miles a second, a second, and it takes you 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. Even at warp 9.9, which is 5,000 times faster than the speed of light, Star Trek would say, it still takes you 107 years to fly across our galaxy. Star Trek makes it sound as if you can just hop from galaxy to galaxy, as if it was nothing. Now, even at warp 9.9, only the boar can go faster than that, just a little bit, but even at warp 9.9, it still takes you 107 years to travel across one galaxy and God made it with words. And, 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 and Amos is calling God's people to reckon with God, And the sad thing is, Israel is saying, okay, we've got this fixed. God's angry with us. We'll go to Bethel. We'll go to Gilgal. We'll have religious festivals. We'll do more religion. We'll have a big tithing session, give money to the church, big building, big building thing. We'll we'll get really busy at church. And God says, no, don't seek those things. Seek me. Seek me. Seek God. Are you seeking God? Because God is seeking you. Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. And the saddest words, but also the most gracious words, I think, in the whole Bible, where are you? Reaching out into the darkness of Adam's Determination to rid himself, to hide from God, and God pursues him. Just like Christ in Laodicea, knocking on the door. They've locked Christ out of the church. He's in the parking lot, banging on the front door. And they're inside doing their church thing, and Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Why is he knocking? Because it's locked. And they're so rich, they think they're so rich and wise, and they think they can see so well. And God says, You have no idea, you're blind and naked. Are you dealing with God? Or are you dealing honestly with His Word when it comes and is hard? I loved Paul's sermon this morning the grace of God. A word coming in with grace. This is a word coming with grace. God is telling them judgment day is coming. God doesn't want them to enter eternity and realize that the day of the Lord was not a day of light but a day of darkness. It's a profound act of grace from God. Are you dealing honestly with your sins? Seek God. Are you seeking Him? In the morning, when the alarm goes off, what would you do if you were seeking God? Do you read His Word? You sometimes I I used to think for the longest time, if I can't spend an hour in quiet time, it's not worth spending any time in it. It's such a stupid, it's the the devil's lie, making the good the enemy of the great, or the great the enemy of the good, sorry. You might only have 15, 15 minutes with God is better than no minutes with God. Reading a psalm, praying. Calling upon God dealing with Him, confessing your sins to Him. Seek God, and seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you've said. Hate evil, and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph." Seek God. Seek good. Sit on your bed, I dare you, and ask yourself the question, what do you know that you're doing, that you're doing wrong? And you maybe do it again and again and again and again. It, it might be just wasting time on the Instagram or Facebook, just going through post after post after post. Or video after video. The, the real is just watching video after video after video. And they know, they, they have you hooked because they know exactly what videos you like. And so there's just one video after another to watch. And those things aren't necessarily wrong in themselves. So the devil is a way of slipping things in that are very wrong in the midst of all that. But they can so easily, like Kudzu cried God out of the soul. You know, when George Bush was in the White House, as president, he and Carl Rove had a game: who could read the most books. Carl Rove, genius. You know, George Bush won it. As president, he averaged reading 54 books a year. It's a book a week. Hi, he said. Simple. I don't watch TV. president reads 54 books a year. Amazing. It just blows my mind. What are you doing that you know is wrong? Ask yourself the question. Seek God and seek good. And the order is very important— Your seeking of good and not evil will be a heartless, lifeless, moralistic endeavor if it's not fueled by a vision of the glory of God in Christ, Christ coming and laying His life down for you. And by having your heart so full of that reality that the only rational response is, I must lay my life down for Him. Not to earn His favor, But to evidence that I have his favor and that I'm grateful for it more than anything else, that I, who deserve the wrath of God, have been enveloped in an endless, shoreless, bottomless sea of the grace of God. Seek good and not evil that you may live. As Jim always says, this way to life. It's a wonderfully positive thing. It's not, you know, don't have sex outside marriage because you'll get pregnant or some disease. That's why we so often speak to our children, no, no, don't have sex outside marriage, because the God who designed sex knows best how sex is to be enjoyed, and you're robbing yourself of life by going against the Creator's design for life. This way to life, Amos is saying, hate evil and love good establish justice. And it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. That's incredible. We so often presume with God's grace, and I'm not in any way arguing with Paul this morning. He was right when we come to God Naked, helpless sinners, God will never turn us away. But it it should amaze us. It should be that we should be so. Amos's God is so big and so holy and so great, he, he can't even bring himself to presume upon the grace of God. It may be, he says. It's like in Joel, isn't it? Joel, I think it's Joel. Yet now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He he begins with the certainty of God's character, but then he says, Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? It's, It's that sense of a soul who bows before God, needing grace and needing mercy and yet the God He's approaching is so great and so grand. He knows, wasn't it, Shed, He said, the exercise of mercy is optional with God. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And that's the God of Amos. this trembling sense of, I need grace, but I don't deserve grace. But the wonderful thing is, when you're describing dessert I mean, deserving something, not what you eat. When, you, when you're describing dessert, you're not describing grace. And yet, the soul coming before God, gripped with a sense of its sin and God's glory, dares not presume upon grace. It's like the leper before Jesus. If you are willing, I know you can, I'm just not so sure that you will. If you will, you can make me clean. And of course, vintage Yahweh, Jesus says, oh, I'm willing. And he touches the man before he cleanses him. And then says, I am willing, be cleansed. He cleansed him with his word, but he touched him with his hand while he was still a leper. Because as you know, when you touch a leper, you become a leper. And there is the grace of God the God calling us away from Bethel, away from Gilgal, away from Beersheba, away from all the names of orthodox things to the reality and through that reality to the God of the reality. And He's a God who's willing not just to receive sinners, but to touch them and to become them in the darkness of Golgotha as Jesus doesn't just bear our sin, but He becomes it it. He doesn't just bear it. He become, it soaks the sin of a thousand billion lifestyles. I know your transgressions. I know your sins. And Jesus can say that because He's experienced them. And more than that, He's become them. Soaked into His DNA, defiled Him to the core of His being, He's become our sin. That by the same logic, you might become His righteousness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank You, O God, that out of my most chaotic moments and panicked heart, You come and meet with Your people. What a picture of Your grace. I'm a basket case, but by Your grace, O God, Through my weakness, you bring the bread of life to your people, and I pray, O Lord, that you would call me and my dear people here gathered away from their sins, away from our sins, and toward our God. And help us never to replace the truth of orthodoxy with just the words of orthodoxy. And help us never to hide from the God of orthodoxy behind the furniture and the places and the names of orthodoxy. O Lord, have mercy. We can't do any of this without your grace. Draw us to you. Drag us. No man can come back to you, Father. Jesus, unless the Father who sent you, drag him. Father, drag us. Hear the prayers of your Son. Does he not always live to make intercession for us? Hear his prayers and drag us back to Jesus and away from our sins, away from our favorite wastes of time, and give us the grace we need and the grace we don't deserve. But grace is never deserved, and yet grace is freely given to the hell-deserving. In Christ's name, amen.